Hi, I'm uh, Mike Ambrogi Primo. Hello, I'm Kev Zettler. And I'm Jim Stormdancer, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Mike, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I am a video game developer, uh, mainly, although I've dabbled in teaching and some other stuff. Uh, and uh, while most of my background is in art and animation, I've recently gotten really interested in programming and recently moved to Maine. And so I spent a lot of my time trying to get better at programming while dealing with the coldest winters of my life thus far. Yeah, actually, um, Kev, if you'll wait a moment to introduce, introduce yourself, I would like to drill down on this for a second because we, we talked at GDC about this. Mike, what have you been doing to learn to program? I agreed to to accept pay from a from a K through twelve private school in Philadelphia uh, to teach children how to program uh, before I myself knew how, and and in so doing, uh, sort of was forced to make good of my threats to teach myself that I'd been making for quite some time, uh, and uh, sort of put a gun to my own head. And then every morning at four a.m., I would wake up and teach myself enough Python to get through the next lesson that was going to happen a few <laughs> hours later. I did that for you know a year and then sort of got my feet under me properly just in time for some in, in sort of introductory python just in time for some students to express an interest in learning to write video games in C++ which was an interest I had as well so I said sure I'll teach you that and I kind of loaded another gun and held it to my head again uh, uh luckily my brother Tim who you who you had as a guest uh on the show uh is a rather an accomplished C++ programmer and so uh, he's been able to kind of shepherd me up that mountain. I wrote a meticulous copy of the 1986 NES game Metroid and just, you know, just tried to make it feature complete and exactly identical in feel uh, to the original. And uh, that would, turned out to be a very useful way to learn how to program games in C++ because it was, you know, a lot of different systems and they all kind of, they sat at just the right challenge level for kind of where I was at. Where they were, they were daunting but doable. I guess is how I describe them. Yeah, I'm really impressed with that choice of project uh, <laughs> as as a learning project. I would not have expected that to be like the perfect beginner project. I'm I'm really liking this whole story. It's a very like an anime kind of storyline here, where you're doing this intense training. Grind, getting up at the crack of dawn and grinding Python and C++ and really, you know, going through this struggle to, uh, you know, get to the next level here. It's inspiring. Oh, thank you. It did have a, a, a bit of a training montage feel yeah, from time yeah. to time. Like I, I was sitting there getting, you know, light sensors and Arduinos to make sounds come out of them, but without waking up my kids and be like, <laughs> well, this is, this is an interesting way to learn this, but I guess it's working. Oh yeah. You did this on top of having kids, right? That is insane to me. That's very impressive. I was—I think I may have said this to you last time we spoke, Jim. That there was a there was a moment there, kind of after the the three year old was three, and then we had the second kid, and then you know that kid got to be around one, and I was like, I was like, man, they say this is a tunnel, but it it's starting to feel an awful lot like a mine shaft, you know. <laughs> it really wasn't clear to me that, that there was light, you know, coming. Uh, but uh, but now that you know the now the youngest is four, uh, about to turn five and and uh, and be vaccinatable, thank God. And uh, and then the oldest is eight. Uh, little by little, they're able to kind of get their little perpetual motion machine of just the two of them playing together, running, you know, from time to time. Oh, nice. So yeah. I do. Have, I do have a little more time for uh, getting better at coding when they're in the building with me than I used to. Right. Kev, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I am founder of a indie gaming site called radk.com. It's a, a you know, a web arcade and also a blogging kind of platform. Uh we're looking for new content to flesh out the blog with. So, uh if you're an indie developer, you want to come shill your game, talk about some kind of interesting tech or experience you've had. Uh, we'll pay you a couple hundred dollars for a publishing deal and then uh, share, you know, do some cross promotion, share your content as well. So if anyone's interested in that, hit me up uh, on Twitter at the Radcade. We're looking for radical content. And I know a lot of uh, people in the indie space will probably have something interesting to contribute. Uh, example, we have an article coming out about a dynamic difficulty system from uh, this interesting mobile game i met at gdc so uh you know cool topics like that that are unique that's what we're looking for is is radcade actually a 
business? Like, I had assumed this was like your hobby project. Oh, uh, it's, it's a little bit of both, you know? A lot of businesses sure, start sure, out as yeah. hobby projects and then That's true. snowball into bigger things. So it's, you know, it's yeah. becoming a brand. Yeah, well, best of luck to you. Yeah, it sounds dope. Are we ready to start on some topics? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Let's get it going. Mike, your topic is embracing creative chaos is very hard, but tar- but paradoxically extremely common. Yeah, which I don't know. I don't know if I'm right about that. Actually, it's it's a it's a it's a premise, I guess. <laughs> uh, but I'd be really interested to hear if it resonates uh, with either of you, because I think it, it it may be that I'm assuming my experience is more universal than it actually is. But I've always found that I found that as like a young person, really having my mind blown by other people's creative work, as one does. Uh, particularly when you're young, I, I really internalized this idea that like people just like they come up with the whole thing and then they just like sort of pour it out of them, you right. know, and that they do so with more or less complete authorial control, which is sort of how I had mainly experienced my own like unbelievably small projects that I did on my own, like a comic book I drew in an afternoon or something, you know. And you know, the reality that I've sort of been confronted with as a as an adult creative and and as a person who's interested in other people's cool creative projects that I, you know, I watched a lot of DVD commentaries and read a lot of issues of like Cinefx magazine as a kid and stuff like that was that actually like a huge percentage of, of what is like the, what I consider to be the very successful, you know, uh, good art that's been made, uh, is often just like stone soup, chaos, bubblegum and bailing wire, everything went wrong and we just had to figure it out on the day kind of stuff, you know, like the, the often, the true story of how something was made. It's almost never the case, I guess, in my own experience that it, that, that a truly amazing thing was just completely solved statically and then just like made real by a person. And I just find it super hard not to operate that way, I guess, like, and to try to do that. You know, does this make sense? <laughs> so like you, you, you seek out the chaos is what you're saying. Well, no, I don't. I, I think don't. as a creator, my, 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 my North Star is, Solve as much of it as you possibly can, and then deviate as little as possible from the thing as you're making it. And every time something happens that I didn't expect, my immediate reaction is that it's a tragic event, right? And then, but I'm right. always almost always wrong. I'm almost always being given an opportunity, you know, to be creative, to do something less kind of stock or, or expected, right? I, I don't know if chaos, creative chaos, is the right experience here. I I feel like I'm hearing creativity through constraint which is mm-hmm. kind of a phenomenon that happens when oh you you approach a project some kind of art or whatever and as soon as your surface area for or you essentially the constraints get applied on what you can produce uh that generally tends to spark creativity and focus creativity into that space uh as it's becoming smaller Totally. I think maybe the reason it feels like chaos to me is because because I'm familiar with like kind of creating my own constraints, right? Like at the front of a project, I'm like, I'm going to make Metroid and I'm going to, you know, not allow myself to create any new features. And it has to be exact, just the first level, you know, and I don't get to create any art or animation for it and and crutch on those sort of skills. So I just have to like rip the sprites and do it that way. Like that kind of thing I'm more comfortable with, I guess. But it's more like once I've made that plan, it feels sort of nicely constrained and reasonably creative. And then I get in there and it's like, oh, actually like you know you get the unintended the unintended constraints or the the roadblocks the the ops the obstacles that you have to overcome essentially yeah the plan sort of yeah it makes contact with the enemy right and yeah, yeah. and uh like i have a friend uh a new friend i made here in maine who's a filmmaker his wife like wrote this movie about like a sort of a romantic comedy set in maine in the winter time and the whole premise of the film is sort of baked it's baked into this idea that like okay like wintertime in maine is really magical and 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 you know wonderful and then they couldn't shoot the fucking thing until springtime i'm sorry can i can i use uh yeah yeah go. This? Is that, okay. we got the we got uh, the e tag on the on the nice. podcast okay. uh, i hate doing that and then i did it um but yeah the the they didn't get to shoot in the wintertime they got screwed by the sort of scheduling with the permits for the town you know and so they had to shoot it in the spring and they were kind of like well geez you know, now we have to, I don't know, rewrite all that stuff and just shoot it differently. You know, like that kind of thing to me is, I guess that's the part where it starts to feel chaotic, where it's like, 
it's not even that you're you're dealing with the constraints you knew about, right? Like new constraints are just sort of bubbling up like, yeah, in, in yeah. the middle of what you're trying like, to I, do. So my take on, you know, you, you definitely want to make a plan unless you're me, in which case you definitely don't. <laughs> but like I'm reminded of there was a quote from one of the developers of Zelda 2. I think it was in an Iwata Asks where they, talk, where they said that the was an 11-month project and they built it exactly how they planned it and then shipped it. And they were saying that this was actually a shame because they didn't get any chance to iterate. And that's what I mm. kind of wanted to get at was like, when you build, you just build what you planned, you don't, you like, you're, you're spending so much. Well, it, I guess if you're spending a day drawing a comic, it's not the same thing. But if you're spending a year making a game, that's a year of more, of further insights you can have informed by the work you're doing, trying out your own game and seeing what changes would make it better. Right. Right. No, totally. This is the joke about like being a good game designer. I'm going to, I'm going to fail in the clutch here to make the joke properly, but paraphrasing the basic idea is that, uh, you know, an experienced game designer is, is right about 10 times as often, you know, about what's going to be successful in the design of a game as, as an inexperienced designer, which is to say they're right about one in 50 times. (laughs) Right. You know, yeah. Like that, that's, that, that's like a, that's like a killer hit rate. And that the real job of being a game designer isn't being right all the time. It's like, taking the right path once it turns out you were wrong about something right it's like it's the course correction and steering up the mountain of like success that like is the work really uh day to day that was my experience anyway working on on a game like james jamestown you know yeah so i kind of hate to bring this up but facebook has an internal motto or they used to move fast and break things which is essentially (laughs) you know move fast and address this chaos uh head on right and figure out these obstacles as they arrive or arise and you know work through them and figure it out yeah and don't be precious about avoiding errors this is something else that like i remember came up in like uh, that sort of ancient netflix self-administered slide deck about how they run their company from many years ago where they they identify this idea of recoverability like how recoverable is this or that error that you think might happen like, what if we're wrong, basically, about this being an idea that's going to work? And if the answer to that question is, then we'll do it the other way pretty fast and it's not a big deal, then don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out if the bad thing's going to happen or how to prevent right, it. Right, right. Like, yeah. just, just make it and then recover if it's recoverable. If it's not recoverable and it's going to, like, sink your company because you spent three years on something you couldn't test until the last day of those three years, then, like, you know, think harder before you do it, right? Do what you can to insulate yourself from that. Right, but I guess right. the thing that was that, that was also sort of the second half of it is is and I don't know if this topic's running long, but this is the thing that, that I guess the crux of it that I found odd is that I internalized this idea so thoroughly as just a consumer of art and, and as a young person, right? And then this idea that it's it that it isn't done the way that we're actually talking about, right? But obviously it is. It's like super common that it's done that way. And I just wonder, like, do people have you two at least? Do you feel like you or have struggled with this same kind of dichotomy in your own creative endeavors. I definitely struggled with it earlier on in my career and in more junior roles, but you essentially, you become jaded to it and you realize there's chaos in everything. And then you learn to roll with the chaos, embrace the chaos and expect the chaos, right? And then always plan a buffer of basically security net security net (laughs) for chaos and things that can go wrong if anything i've had the opposite problem where like the only game i've ever made that had more than just like a very simple plan in my head before i started was the the hat dlc for frog fractions Hmm. like that's the only thing where i actually wrote down some like a few pages of like a google doc uh for like what this thing is actually going to be before I started building it. Right. See, I think that's the even the more sage strategy here is just go in with no expectations and then anything. Can I happen. love working like that. Like I, <laughs> I that's that's my comfort zone. I I do think that like there's a, a phenomenon here where like different um different industries will are comfortable with different levels of chaos. Like I think for example, um the Facebook ethos is very common in Silicon Valley of you'll know, move fast, break things. And I think that that runs up against some serious um, moral issues when, for example, they try to build self-driving cars. 
for sure. <laughs> for sure. Right, right, right. Or computer vision stuff that like doesn't understand that black people exist. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, that whole that whole genre of tech work. Right, and then then you go outside of programming and you get like the the ac- actual disciplined engineering fields that build bridges and things like that. And those guys, as as far as I know, like that stuff is planned down extremely meticulously before work begins and they're not they're not improvising the bridges at all right i remember when i taught this i taught this engineering class uh when i was a teacher and the i i I took pains to kind of introduce them to sort of what they the traditional kind of nasa-esque uh engineering design process and then to contrast that with the more kind of i don't know appley uh design thinking so-called design thinking process like with the with the design thinking it's like much more it's sort of lower stakes right like you're not making things where like if you're wrong like a building falls over you know yeah um and so they ground everything much more in kind of user empathy and and you know user experience and and things of that nature whereas on the engineering design process side they're like you know they're trying to put someone on the moon like they really it really super duper extra needs to definitely totally provably work you know <laughs> yeah and <laughs> And then, you know, the places where you kind of get the the useful intersection of the two is when someone, you know, decides that they need to figure out how to build a building to, I don't know, that can hold like 12 elephants on the roof and also convey huge amounts of water up onto the roof. And then when you're like, well, why are you doing that? And they're like, well, we have to, we have to give water to the elephants. And it's like, well, yeah, but why are they, why can't we just put them down on the ground? And like, oh, right. Then we don't have to build such a strong building. You know, like there's sort of a, (laughs) there's, there's an interplay, right. Between your, your kind of pure engineering problem solving approach versus your like, yeah, but what are we really here to do? Yeah. Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Kev, your topic is thanatosensitivity. Yes. So thanatosensitivity, this is like a, uh, Subdiscipline of human computer interaction that takes into consideration human mortality and uh, the user experience of of death basically how do you apply human mortality and death to computer science to things like personal data, online identity, and uh, biometrics, things like that. What do you do with someone's data once they pass? Uh, it's kind of a dark topic. This Thanatos in the name is from the Greek god of death. I think it was a character mm. in the Hades game, right? Uh, Sounds right. Yeah. But yeah, I thought I thought I thought this was pretty interesting, kind of sub computer science uh, division, and a lot of. Uh, Thoughts about like, you know, how much data people put onto the internet and what happens to that when they pass. Uh, you know, there's this weird Facebook phenomenon. If someone passes, you have somebody hijack their Facebook accounts like, hey, Kev's not here anymore. This is so-and-so posting on their behalf. You know, weird ideas about digital ghosts in the machine kind of thing. Um, I had a really intense uh experience around this actually on on linkedin of all things uh, a former colleague of mine uh the first game studio that i worked at you know he went and got a job uh at another company and we kind of lost touch and then his mom got cancer and and he sort of left the game industry to take care of her and then and then he actually got cancer and, and passed away quite young like in his you know his uh had to have been his like mid early to mid 30s jeez yeah yeah i was like but I didn't know about it. And then I found out about it like a few years later and, and, you know, was really shocked because it, had, you know, it had, it had happened a little ways back and obviously he was so young and, and, um, you know, I had like kind of pretty specific, you know, visions of seeing this person that you see in the years ahead as I had in the years behind, you know, so it was just like a real jarring moment. And then like a few years after that, like pretty recently when I was sort of like, you know, firing up LinkedIn for the first time in a long time to actually uh, kind of get it into shape. And uh, start thinking about looking for new work. You know how they have that messaging client, where like you know you can like just have direct messages with folks like AIM who like, are connected to via the LinkedIn network. Like LinkedIn does. Okay. Yeah. 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 So um, I had sort of. I mean, I literally hadn't logged into LinkedIn for probably eight years. You know, and uh, it just wasn't part of my life. Like I was running my own game company. Like I just didn't have a lot of use for it. Uh, so I logged back in and the, all the messages I'd received over the past eight years were delivered. 
right? In their little messaging interface. And I had a bunch of messages from this friend. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Like right there, like fresh, like right next to the ones that had come in within the last, you know, whatever month or two were like ones from whatever it was six years ago that were just like, Hey man, just, you know, reaching out kind of thing. And yeah, I was, that was like properly hard, you know, like that was actually really, yeah. Um, uh, I feel like that's becoming a common story. I feel like that's shared with a lot of people. Yeah. yeah they gotta, they gotta figure that out. That is, um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I, I think, that was a moment of relatively low Thanatos sensitivity on the part of <laughs> yeah. the LinkedIn UX, you know? Yeah, that, that would be – you definitely want those messages to be available, but maybe behind a content warning or something. Yeah. That might be all it takes. No, just there was a split second there where I was like, wait a minute. Am I talking to this dude? Like there was sort of – there was that ghost thing, you know, for yeah. just like a moment before yeah. my, my brain – You go through the wave of emotions like, wait, is this this guy? Wait, did somebody hijack yeah. his account? Wait, no, this is just LinkedIn messing, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't take long, right, to like kind of lock in on what was going on, but it was, it felt like a long time. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of experiences I've I've had about of this sort of thing in my life. And the one that comes to mind is when Alan died, I remember going on ICQ and he was still online. Oh, I got the news like this was like because because no one had gone to his house yet, you know, and then we went to his house and like he had a message on OkCupid from someone who was like, hey, weren't we meeting up this afternoon? And we had to respond to her. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the one that like, and again, I don't know how you solve this, but I wish the US postal system had some sort of mechanism to tell you whether the person you're sending a Christmas card to is dead. Mm. Because currently the mechanism is that you get a list of, of people you should send Christmases, Christmas cards to from your mom. Uh, and then you go to the store and you buy a pack of like a hundred of the same card. And then you send a card to each of those people every year, the same card, because you bought a hundred of the same card. And then one year you get a message, like a, a, a polite letter written back saying, sorry, this person died. And then you just stop sending cards. Mm-hmm. Seems, uh, seems reasonable. Yeah, that's <laughs> – I, I think that's a pretty universal experience uh, and there's got to be a better way. Yeah, yeah. Thanatosensitivity is a useful term, I'm realizing. There's like a lot of – Thanatechnologies are the tools applied to uh, thanatosensitivity. Yeah, I, when I saw this, at first I was wondering like I, – I, I Googled it, but before I did, I was wondering, is this like a ESP thing? When you could you could talk to ghosts, apparently it is kind of like that. Actually, yeah. If you that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, what extrasensory perceptive sensitive? Oh, okay, not the same terminology, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, people don't die all at once. Yeah, I have a couple of stories. I I don't really want to dwell on this topic because it's getting kind of <laughs> dark. But uh, I was involved in a, a gaming community in like the late 90s uh for this uh game and it was very mod driven so it built up this modding community around it right and like uh i was active in the forums and everything i stopped looking at it around like early 2000s and then you know i decide to check in and like the late 2010s you know and like all this activity had happened since i had kind of departed right and then uh one individual of the community like decided he was going to make it kind of his life's work to play through every mod for the game and then like do a blog post on his basically review every mod and he was a very articulate writer and did really great posts Mm -hmm. on all these mods and so he went through and i think it took him like two or three years to review all these mods and he did like you know hundreds of blog posts uh reviews and he kind of like wrote a whole narrative uh going through the history of the community and these mods and everything and then unfortunately shortly after this project he committed suicide and the community went on to publish all his blog posts and his reviews into like a physical hard copies of stuff kind of in remembrance of his work and everything. Mm. But I found that out like, you know, years after this had all happened. And I was like, damn, that is a bummer. Right. And then 
I went through and kind of like read his posts and everything. And he kind of like gave me a shout out in the post about how much he enjoyed hanging out with me and everything. And like, I was super bummed to like, uh, you know, just a lot of what ifs happened during that experience. Yeah. Yeah. That, that particular part of it, I remember the exact same feeling. I think I had like a, like a pending like LinkedIn endorsement from this person. And, and it was a bunch of, you know, just sort of nice things that they said about working with me and like something about how they felt about you that you find out through their writing or something that was recorded like after they've passed. Yeah. It's, it's like, kind uh, of this weird, like time distortion effect, right. On the internet. Cause it's like, well, that content's right there. That's not going anywhere. Like, uh, right. It's not aging, you know, and then the human events takes place outside this separate flow of time that the internet is subject to. Yeah. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yeah, let's let's lighten it up in here. <laughs> uh, my, my topic is uh, GDC happened this year. They really did it. I wasn't sure they were gonna. I wasn't sure I was gonna go because it maybe was a terrible idea. I had a blast. Uh, I did not attend the expo at all. I went to a couple adjacent parties. I went to this event in the East Bay uh, called Slug World. It was hosted by uh, some gaming collective called Slug Human. Shout out to that crew and everybody at that party. That was awesome. It was just a low-key chill thing in a park. Uh, yeah, there was like free beer and weed there. It was, uh, it was a great like East Bay party. Um, <laughs> I also went to an event at Noisebridge, which was pretty interesting. It was like a mini conference for human brain computer interaction. Whoa. Uh, yeah, not super on target with games, but they had a lot of really cutting edge presentations. Um, I, I think games want to go there. I oh, think yeah. they'd love to love to be in that space eventually. Oh yeah, there was a lot of VR overlap, and you know, like the same tools are used to create these brain computer uh, interface simulations, like Unity and everything. So there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, yeah. I also like who who goes to GDC for the expo? Like that's yeah. That, I mean, I would, I, I, I do. I'm sad I didn't go to Alt Control this year, but that's the only thing, really. Yes, sometimes yeah. I like hitting the the floor for the indie uh, showcase and the Alt Control stuff. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I kind of like, I like being in crowds, and sometimes I even like the big corporate sh uh, shill stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and I, and I had a very lightweight GDC because I was trying not to burn myself out because I had work the next week. Uh, but but I just spent the whole time on the lawn, basically. The lawn and, like, sometimes I'd run off with somebody to get lunch. Uh, and it was really lovely. Just really, like, frankly, the like, weirdly, the, the, the majority of the people that I hung out with were people who were, like, lo Bay Area local. <laughs> so it's it felt kind of like, uh, what are we even doing? But, you know. <laughs> we could do this anytime. But it was. We could, but we don't. Right. Right. So. It was an animating impetus. Yeah. Uh, one person uh, that I had lunch with on Friday tested positive for COVID the next day. Oof. But, but was testing himself each day and did not test mm -hmm. positive the morning before the lunch. So, like, uh, I, I think I dodged a bullet. Like, I don't I, – like, I've been tested since then. I don't think I caught it. Uh, and I think it's just because he wasn't contagious yet. Well, you were you were out right. outdoors a lot too, right, we were, Jim? Yeah, I was outdoors pretty much like the whole time, unless I was like eating. The one event I did go to was called it was it was one of the relaxing chats. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about that because it's run by a mailing list. I'm not allowed to talk about. It's in a gray area. Like I believe it was open to like they were just like passed the sign up sheet around. Like I don't I don't think it was I think it, it's born in that place, but I think that I think it was semi public. It was sort of like, you know, friends and family ish. Uh I'll, I'll risk it then. I'll risk it then. It was a very lovely, like imagine a GDC talk except instead of a person talking to an auditorium full of five hundred people, it's they're talking to a hotel room full of like six people. Oh, I think uh, I, I yeah. think I've heard of these events in the past. I think I know people have attended these. Maybe it was you, Jim. <laughs> yeah, maybe possibly. Yeah, like these little mini mini unconferences. Yeah, the unconference mm -hmm. phenomenon has been happening for a while, but this is 
This is my favorite one, and it's just the scale of it. It's just like, and what's frustrating about it is that like you can't, it, it just can't scale. This is not something you can like tell everybody about and say everybody should come because then it wouldn't work. Right. It has to be extremely hush hush because otherwise everybody would be like, oh, that sounds amazing. I'm going to that instead. Yeah, yeah. You could you top out at like seven people, and right? You're like, well, that's that's it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I also attended a, a relaxing chat or two, and I agree that was like a really, yeah, it was just like a really good vibe and really like really high. Uh, it felt to me like a, like a particularly good use of my time. You know, like I felt like the kind of like substance to fluff ratio was extremely favorable uh, for for substance. Yeah, yeah. It's weird going to GDC. Like, it's just GDC has been so many different things to me in the in the more than ten years that I've been going. Where like when I first started going, I was working for you know a pretty big st- studio, and so I was you know <laughs> it was very much like go to the talks where people talk about doing the kind of stuff we're doing, so you can learn how to do it better, maybe you know like it was very much yeah. that. Then when I, we started our own when we started Final Form Games and had our own little indie studio, like the focus really shifted over into kind of like networking with other indies, and and eventually like once we had a game like like just trying to land deals, right? Like just try to talk to publishers and stuff like that. Like that, it, it became very businessy, you know? And like yeah. uh, the idea of going, going to a talk, like just felt like an indulgence, you know, like, I, <laughs> like I love, you know, talks about weird, you know, rendering techniques, you know, but like, I just couldn't justify them for years there. Yeah. Well, and, and now, and for a while, so several years now, all those talks have been coming to YouTube. Right. That's the other thing is that they democratized some of that really like kind of like, really juicy high octane stuff uh, a lot more than they had in the past so yeah you don't even necessarily have to go for that um but then it's funny hearing you talk about sitting on the lawn for most of gc because then that's the other thing is that like eventually it also became where it was like that the conference itself is sort of a non-thing and like the only reason i was coming was to go to like very specific parties and see very specific people outside the conference itself you know and yeah. so the, the the fact that like you were i think that like what you're describing as your gdc may be kind of like the like the ascended, you know, platonic GDC of just like, well, it's, and, it's and the GDC same. that like, you don't, you don't need anything from the business side of GDC anymore. Right. Right. And you're, you're just there to see friends. Right. And it turns into, yeah, like much more of, a, and, and maybe to go to, and to make new friends, right? Like to go to a cool party and, and see some cool stuff that's happening. But like, like what you're describing, Kev, like that's, that's feeling more and more like kind of the optimal version of it to me. I am I am all Dunbar Dunbar's numbered out when it comes to making game dev friends. Like, um, <laughs> I go to GDC, and it used to be like my first GDC was what 2013, and it was very exciting. I met a lot of new people, made a bunch of friends. It was it was very cool. I tried to go to a couple of talks, but it was just like this is not. It it was very it very quickly became evident this is not what this is about for me. As years went on, and I came back, and I I started seeing more of the same people. And I think it's the phenomenon that's happening is just that like, you're walking down the corridor or the sidewalk. And uh, if you see someone, you know, you go say hi. And if that doesn't happen for a while, there's a chance in that span of time, you're going to meet a new person. But as you know, more and more people, you just immediately see someone, you know, and you go talk to them. And so like, I'm spending the entire time talking to people I know. Is that does that feel like stagnation to you a little bit? Like, are you like, kind of, problem solving around a little bit in your mind about like, how do I, how do I diversify and kind of mix that up a little more? Or are you sort of like, yo, I know a lot of people I'm, I'm all set. <laughs> I, it does feel like a level of maturity, which is fitting because I also have like much less energy for going to parties now. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, by maturity, I mean like career maturity. Like I don't need really to network. I've got a network. Right. I could, I right. could move to a, uh, a cabin in the woods and be fine if it has an internet connection. Um, on the other hand, uh, meeting somebody at GDC, like not, not, a, not meeting somebody there, but like uh, a meeting at GDC is how I got funding for my last game. Uh, right. And so I'm possibly not, you know, uh, completely out of the woods in terms of the business end of things, making deals. Yeah. Well, as long as there's really, really powerful people attending GDC, I think it's always going to be, those opportunities are in there, you know? Yeah. Uh, like I remember we, we, we showed Jamestown at the, um, the PlayStation experience, the first PlayStation experience kind of expo thing that they did at in Vegas. Mm-hmm. And 
I would say, I mean, Tim might disagree, but I, in, in his recollection, but what I remember is that we pretty much went because like, and I think, I believe we talked about this explicitly, uh, not to like get the word out with people who were attending, like people walking past the booth and not to, you know, do anything kind of marketing except to be, to increase the odds that we would be standing in a room with one of the kind of seven or so people at Sony who could just completely change our stars by deciding to promote the game in a heavy way at some point, you know, and that's pretty much what happened, you know, that, that, you know, one of our, one of the Sony reps walking past our booth was like, how's it going? And we were like, it's going great. And they were like, can you get this thing out by spring? And we said, like, can you hit like whatever it was like March something? And we were like, yes. And they were like, do you want to be in the spring fever promotion? And we were like, yes, <laughs> and, you know, to, to buy what the spring fever promotion represents, right. Which is like a full PlayStation store takeover with a custom background and like all this crazy stuff for like, you know, for a full day. And then as part of it for the full week would be a, I don't know, six figure outlay or something. And we just, right. we just got it because we were there to have that conversation in that moment, you know? Yeah. That's a big deal. And which is, I mean, an insane way to run your business, by the way. <laughs> that shouldn't be your plan, you know, to win the cocktail. Random serendipitous <laughs> encounter. Uh, your whole business yeah, yeah, is backed to, on it. Yeah, to win, to win uh, uh, the cocktail party, you know, uh, uh, Yahtzee, you know. But it, if 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 you want to make a leverage play on your kind of like charisma and luck stats, like that's the good way to do it. <laughs> you know, let's go to a bunch of those things and be in the room with those people. Yeah. Any any hot like COVID takes about GDC? I feel like in the aftermath of it, there's been a, like a really intense conversation happening on Twitter about the wisdom or folly of even doing it and the morality of various actors in the space. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I was as safe as one could reasonably be, which is to say uh, masked unless eating and almost always like outdoors almost the whole time. And I still... Yeah. Like, I still feel like I was inches away from getting it. Yeah. Yeah. I think masked outdoors is, I mean, that's, you, you were living the gold standard there. <laughs> um, but yeah, you'd have to eat sometime, you know, and you're statistically going to tend to do it around other people. And, and if you're going to have your mask off inside, that'll be, that'll be when you have it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all the risk is really, really concentrated <laughs> in those moments. Yeah, I feel like I, I had the same kind of dodging a bullet feeling. I think if I had chosen to do more kind of indoor stuff on Friday, I really would have been rolling the dice. Um, and I just didn't happen to, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't really occur to me. Like the incubation period is what, four or five days? Like ish. Day five <laughs> has got to be like the riskiest. Like Friday has got to be the worst day to do that stuff. Well, it all depends on when, right? I mean, like some of the folks who, who came up positive, it, it seems very likely that that it was on the plane over actually. Wow. Um, yeah. Just that, based on the yeah. timeline, you know, folks who are getting, who are, who are symptomatic on, on Wednesday and that flew in sense. on like, you know, Sunday night, like it's kind of like, they, there's no way they got it on at a party on Monday. Right. So yeah, I don't know. I think it was a, it, it, whatever, as is always the case with COVID, it's a, the fog of war is very thick, but yeah. But yeah, it was a little, it was, you know, I, I went through a lot of rapid tests the last five days. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Now I'm in the phase of GDC where I'm giving things away. Mm. I'm like the the swag phase where I <laughs> I had uh Lori's you have a duffel bag. <laughs> I did. You saw me carrying it around, yeah. Yep. Uh, uh I had uh trophies to give away to people who were on Topic Lords. Uh and I had uh copies boxed copies of Glittermitten Grove to give away to people who had helped with the Frog Fractions 2 ARG. Or with the game itself. And that stuff was really fun. Did you just have a sack of goodies out at the park? That's exactly, quite, what, exactly what happened. Quite yeah. literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. GDC Santa over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite moment at, at GDC was one of the people I gave the box to. We just started unboxing it right there on the lawn and checking out. We, we were checking out the contents. Oh, that's cool. And um, one of the things in there is a map of text world, just like pay, like stitched together out of screenshots, like in the good old days. Yeah. There was a guy who looked like he had been a game developer in the 80s, like a, a real gray beard who like just kind of wandered up and was asking if he could, if, if where he could buy this boxed game. 
uh, because it's it's the it's a, like the old style big box that like they didn't even have they have those in like I think those have got phased out like in the early nineties. I think yeah. it was this yeah for sure yeah. definitely. I think a real nostalgia moment for him, and it was he was disappointed that you couldn't like it was a limited run thing. Right, it can't be had. Right, <laughs> so uh, I like I like that this graybeard just comes out of the woodwork to check out this. Yeah, admiring box, my right? fancy like- art map. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I told him you can buy it on Steam, and then I explained to him that like first you're gonna have to play this other game to get to the one you're looking at. Oh man, yeah, what a what a <laughs> what a what a rabbit hole that dude stumbled onto. I mean, what a. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, I hope he enjoys it. Did you did you have to explain the whole ARG uh, to him as well? Uh, I did not try doing that. Yeah, I did, did, there's there's a lot of a lot of context you can have or or miss out on to play this game. So what was what was your favorite GDC moment? It's a good question. Uh, I I have to just reiterate hanging out at the Slug World party and playing some people's demos out at the park in uh, Berkeley was pretty. It had some good hippie vibes and yeah, it was just, that was a good time. Yeah, I think mine is really weird and 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 I know we've like we've spent a certain number of minutes kind of like disrespecting the expo, but I think <laughs> my moment may have actually happened on the expo floor. Me and my brother Tim were walking around down there. Really, the only time that we walked around down there, and um, uh, we we wandered over to like the Perforce booth. Tim kind of got buttonholed by one of their reps who was sort of showing off their new kind of like asset management like kind of system, and uh, and I was sort of fielding text messages for like setting up a lunch or something, kind of standard GDC like six things are happening at once behavior. Uh, when one of their other sales reps came over, you know, hey, like how's it going? Have you had a chance to check out the, you know, the, the thing that he's showing over there? And I was like, Oh yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, you know how it is. I'm just getting all these text messages written. And then I, I kind of, I think I, I like doing this thing where like I ask those people how their GDC is going before they can ask me. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like, like it sort of puts them off balance and it seems to delight them. And it just, I like that instead of like being sold at by people, like I just like, it's a more comfortable way to enter those conversations for me. So I was like, Hey, how's your, how's your show going? And and she said, you know, said it was going great. And she asked me how mine was going. And I was like, I decided to be radically honest, <laughs> which was basically that it had been, you know, a, a little bit of a rough ride for me the first few days. I, I you know, I'm, I'm currently on the job market. I'm just feeling vulnerable. You know, it's been a long time since my company shipped the game. And so I was feeling like, you know, my relevance level was a little, little lower than it has ever been actually since, since I started going. And uh, man, Katie uh she gassed me up like she just like hauled off and said a bunch of like really positive things about like you know c++ like pros like programmers prospects in the market right now and just like she was just like very uh very encouraging and kind you know and didn't try to sell me any perforce products wow it was wonderful (laughs) yeah like she 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 low-key was like you know you should if you're interested in sales you should like you know we can use technical salespeople. you know she was kind of like there's opportunities everywhere, man. It was cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, <laughs> did it was not expecting that story at all. <laughs> it's weird, I know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was the warmest fuzzies I think I, I felt that whole time. Followed closely by most of the times I was hanging out with you, actually, because you were always surrounded by like just like a squadron of cool people, Jim. It was like a really, really reliable bet on any given day if i could find you i could find cool people to talk to <laughs> what are the what are the hazards of being jim storm dancer <laughs> are, are we ready for another topic yeah for this topic we're going to be reading the poem reading and discussing tarantulas on the life buoy by thomas lux who wants to read the poem i nominate mike <laughs> i guess i i did i did bring it forth tarantulas on the life buoy by thomas lux For some semi-tropical reason, when the rains fall, relentlessly, they fall into swimming pools, these otherwise bright and scary arachnids. They can swim a little, but not for long, and they can't climb the ladder out. They usually drown, but if you want their favor, if you believe there is justice, a reward for not loving the death of ugly and even dangerous, the eel, hog snake, rats, creatures, If you believe these things, then you would leave a life buoy or two in your swimming pool at night, and in the morning, you would haul ashore the huddled, hairy survivors 
and escort them back to the bush, and know, be assured, that at least these saved as individuals would not turn up again someday in your hat, drawer, or the tangled underworld of your socks, and that even when your belief in justice merges with your belief in dreams, they may tell the others, in a sign language four times as subtle and complicated as man's, that you are good, that you love them, that you would save them again. So I really like this in the abstract, and I could never do what this poem is suggesting I do, (laughs) uh, because I cannot, like, I'm terrified of big spiders. So, sorry, fuckers, you're on your own. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. How big are these spiders in this poem? Tarantulas. Uh, Tarantulas. Tarantulas are pretty, Oh, okay, it's in the title. I missed that. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're hand-sized, you know, pretty big. Yeah, those are terrifying. (laughs) They're kind of the big dog of scary spiders, you know? Like, they're sort of the the one. Yeah, but this is like, I would read this to my son, and like, when when my son is around, I I can't be afraid of spiders because I don't want him to mo- I don't want to model that for him, right. you know. I don't want him to be afraid of spiders. And so I will like, you know, say, "Oh, oh, look, do you want to look at this under your magnifying glass?" When I myself I'm like mentally recoiling. I I have the same thing. I'm like I'm terrified of spiders um and 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 I, you know, I have two young kids who I've really, I've really done my best to make them like bug friendly, you know. Yeah. Um. And and so like one, you know, they one they they have had for a long time sheets that are covered with like you know somewhat stylized but very clear uh, images of of bugs, you know, like big spiders and beetles and butterflies and stuff like that. Yeah. That's just been in their life, you know. So I I do I I am confident that they're more comfortable around them than I am. That's um, good. But but yeah, no, this this story is like it's a tough thing to imagine doing with this. I do I do like this poem. It has a very good karma, like good karma message to it, you know, like don't hurt insects, mm. very like Buddhist kind of insect treatment thing here. Extending an olive branch to the tarantulas, like they'll love you back and they'll talk about how you save them kind of thing. That's that's nice. That's very nice. But yeah. also also I'm I'm wondering what the authors life was like and how often was he scooping tarantulas out of his pool in his sock drawer you know like where's <laughs> yeah, this guy no, living I'm... yeah there's parts of the world where yeah that, mike have yeah, you lived in a place like places like this i mean not with tarantulas but i have lived in places with like really intense bugs like uh when i i was i grew up mostly in liberia and you know they've got like those like big crazy like rhino beetles and stuff there you know like like yeah the, the no the no messing around like super big beetles and and you know their share of spiders and stuff really crazy ant stuff like just huge 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 columns of ants it is weird what you can get used to i guess like i remember we stayed at a hotel once uh in a different town than the one we lived in in africa and we like the door wasn't sealed against the sort of the the door frame so like there was a little bit of like a gap at the at the ground level and like light from the room was sort of bleeding out there and when you open the door, that was just completely covered in bugs. Like just that that strip, you know, where huh. they were just just hanging out where the light was, because there's there also just wasn't a huge amount of artificial light. Different different world. <laughs> yeah, this the there's also a line in this poem about eels, hog snake, and rats. <laughs> so this is where's this guy? Australia or something? I don't know. That sounds rough, man. I think it's got to be South America. Is my what is a hog snake? <laughs> I don't know. If I, I'm bad. gonna, I'm gonna make a guess that it's a snake that can eat a hog. Like, yeah, the, I can see that. I, they're I, out there. I feel like some constrictor snakes can detach their jaws and like swallow. Yeah. You know, like a boa constrictor could swallow a wild boar or something. Yeah, they, they remove their jaw, put the jaw on the boar, and then go like, I'm gonna go watch some TV while you work <laughs> on this, work on this hog. <laughs> I feel like I used to be less scared of bugs. I I don't know. I scared scared isn't no no, I'm definitely scared of bugs. I can deal with it most of the time and it's fine. But I remember um growing I, I spent a couple of years in Florida as a kid and my gr- grandparents' pool constantly had like bugs falling into it and needing my help. And I remember 
like just you know letting letting beetles crawl on my finger. I remember mm-hmm. very specifically like what a you know beetle desperately clinging to my fingertip feels like, mm-hmm. like a pruny fingertip. <laughs> and I would definitely not do that now. I would probably use. I would still save it. I would use the net, but um, uh, yeah. I don't know, like what changed that made me like. I don't. I didn't have any traumatic experience or anything. I think exposure is a big part of it. I had a new appreciation for bugs after playing the game Hollow Knight, which is like you know bug universe <laughs> and what happens to sentient bugs and everything. Uh, yeah. I started, you know, looking at mosquitoes and being like, man, maybe I won't smash this guy. He's just trying to get through his day, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's totally fair. There was like a really formative bug experience for me also in Liberia where the the, um, termites would do their big like mating flight once a year. That sounds terrifying. I'm just imagining swarms already. Yeah, no, that's what it is. Like, just like you know, just like millions of them like would sort of grow wings for the occasion, right? Like they don't typically have them, but the, I believe the males would grow wings and then they would like, yeah, sort of have a big old termite sex party, I guess. Uh, and, and then they would land and their wings, the, the wings would fall off and they would just be like everywhere, like that morning, like they would just be covering like every surface. And this is like traditionally what you would do if you like grew up in Liberia is like on the morning after the, you know, the termite mating flight, you would just gather them into like buckets and cook them, <laughs> like fry them up with like palm oil and salt and, you know, a little pepper or whatever, if you're into spicy food. And then, and then you just have them as like snacks. Um, and it's just sort of like a, sort of a delicacy, like a special treat that happens once a year when you can get these things, you know in quantity in a reasonable way and and really fresh yeah and like and so like i would you know i would have like a like a baggie full of termites you know in my lunch box for like a week you know (laughs) uh and just like eat them uh (laughs) and they were you know pretty good and it was just like a very weird thing to have just be normal in your life for a minute there but yeah it was just like oh yeah there's a morning when the whole world is covered in bugs and then but you get to eat them and then that's that's pretty cool so this is part of the termite life cycle is being fried in palm oil and somehow that results in termite babies well the males have sort of served their purpose at that point oh i see it's only the males that like that curl up and die and in in droves oh no they're not dying buddy they're 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 alive (laughs) (laughs) they're they're fine. They're fine until you huck them in the oil. Yeah, no, they're just like in these <laughs> these buckets that are just full of termites. Like it's super crazy. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, in retrospect, it was like you know pretty pretty tough if you have any kind of insect phobia. But how, like, you know, uh, how long do does the surplus of termites last? How long are people snacking on termites after that? I mean, most folks don't really have like um, in in like the villages and stuff people don't really have like refrigeration so um so not yeah like not long like a week or something at most um yeah it's just like a just like a big kind of binge thing that happens and then it's over at least that's my recollection i was pretty young you know i mean i'm probably i could well be in any like you know (laughs) born and raised liberians who are listening to this and shaking their heads like i apologize if i'm getting the details wrong it was it was a long time ago and i feel like you could salt them and then they would last longer but also you're just gonna run out you're just you're gonna run you're run out of bugs. Yeah, I mean, if you dried them, you know, they'd, they'd be pretty good for a long time. Yeah, yeah. You bring get you get some uh, dehydrators to send to that village. Yeah, as I recall, the heads were already pretty salty. Actually, like you didn't even really need to salt them very much. You okay? So you remember what the individual body parts tasted like? Well, you yeah, I mean, because right, like you take it out of the baggie and you're kind of like, all right, what am I gonna do here? I guess I don't like how big are they? Is is my question? They're not now. very big. They're like they're like smaller than a jelly bean. I mean, they're pretty. Okay, they're, all right. They're they're, they're like a, just a wee little thing. Okay. They're sort of longer and skinnier than a jelly bean, and maybe like you know sixty percent of the volume stretched out kind of thing. Sure. But still, like when you get it, you're kind of like, oh man, am I about to like pop a whole bug in your mouth, my mouth? You know. And so I was like, well, I'm just gonna like take a nibble. Yeah. Know? No, so you gotta eat the head first so they can't <laughs> scream. Right. Right. And so you know. I was like, I'm not going to start with the butt. I guess I'm starting with the head, you know. So I started with the head. Like, did oh. Did you reach a normalization point where you're like, oh, I'm eating bugs, not a big deal? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. By the by the by the bottom of the bag, I was just like hucking them, hucking them in my mouth like snacks. Like it was like a like a cheese it situation by the end there. <laughs> it's weird. I know. <laughs> kind of hungry now, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you can get crickets in this country. I've never seen termites, but you can get crickets. Yeah. There was a couple that asked me for permission to name their cricket farm Bug Mars. Awesome. <laughs> so, hope they're doing well with that. High praise. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Yeah. Sure. Uh, Kev, your topic is being left-handed in a right-handed world. Yeah, this is a fun one. Uh, so, I don't know if you guys, what's your dominant hand, Mike, Jim? I'm right-handed. I am a lefty. Okay, so Mike's going to be able to relate to this. Uh, there's a lot of things in this world that are inherently designed for right-handed people that people don't, you know, people. it's annoying for lefties to use uh, that, like, gets totally overlooked. For example, the, the zipper on my jeans right now is made for right-handed access. Can I I go out and buy left-handed jeans? No. Um, Nope. Doorknobs are traditionally positioned so that you can open a door with your right hand. It's more convenient. Well, that that depends on which way you're going through the door, though. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. Mike, I'm sure you probably have some of these uh, lesser-known examples, right? Like, everybody knows scissors are a pain to use for lefties. I thought I had, like, a developmental problem learning to use scissors as a kid. Oh no! Like they, I mean, they seriously do not work if you're using the wrong hand. Like they just straight up will not cut. You know, yeah. particularly the ones they give you in like your kindergarten classroom. Um, and and yeah, no, I was just like, I guess I'm I'm not a scissor guy. <laughs> I feel like I was put into remedial classes, like handwriting classes and stuff, just because it was harder for uh, like the teaching staff to help teach me how to write uh, left-handed. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, the writing things, I think for me in my life, it's been the biggest one because like, you know, we write left to right and just that simple fact makes writing left-handed longhand like really, really, really annoying. Um, I, I finally actually like had it just hit my limit uh, in my 20s with this problem. I was just like, this has to be a solved problem. Like lefties need to be able to write things, right? <laughs> and so I did, I did the, I did the research. I found the comprehensive like Thunderdome review of like all pens for lefties and uh and I found their champion and it's not close. It's the is the Uniball Jetstream rollerball pen. So what are the what are the advantages of the Uniball? Yeah. So the Jetstream uh is is a little on the expensive side compared to like your basic ballpoint pen, but still completely affordable. What makes it special uh, is a couple things. One is that it has a pressurized uh, ink reservoir, so it actually drives the ink out uh, with a little bit of force when you when you actually articulate, like when you actually make the ball move. It's not just gravity fed, right? It's not gravity fed, and it's not like um, like the pens are sort of dis- typically expect they expect you to use it right handed, and when you're writing in English, especially you know you're you're going from left to right, so you're 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 holding the pen in such a way that most of the marks you're making you're 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 dragging the tip behind the pen if that makes sense like behind the body of the pen uh-huh whereas when you're writing left-handed you're actually sort of driving the tip forward yeah you're pushing it yeah it's a push versus pull thing right and and for whatever reason the the movement of the ink out of the tip is like way more successful if you're if you're sort of dragging it than if you're pushing it unless you have a pressurized ink reservoir in which case uh, it comes out just fine. And then the other thing that makes it special is the ink itself dries instantly. So you don't get the oh yeah inf- you don't get the infamous hand smudge as you're pushing your hand through the ink, right? Kev, not even a little bit, not even a little. Wow, bit. I'm I mean, s- I'm sold, Mike. I'm gonna have it to... like it actually, truly, they solved it. Like if you're a lefty, accept no substitute. The Uniball Jetstream rollerball pen is the one. The prince who was promised. Um, Changed my life truly. We just have stacks of them in our house because uh, my my wife likes them. Who is not a lefty, just because they're straight up good pens, right? Like they're not marketed to lefties, but it's one of these things where like if you know, you know. Um, and then my my daughter is a lefty as well, so I, I want her to have a better experience than I did. Yeah. So most most lefties end up being kind of ambidextrous because uh, yes, you tend to pick up 
you know, you tend to look at things from a right-handed perspective as well. Um, for example, uh, I play guitar. I play a right-handed guitar. Uh, yeah, me too. I just, it was just easier to pick up a guitar and just learn. And frankly, like strumming with my right hand, uh, it, I feel like it's better to fret with my left hand, my dominant hand. I can, it's easier to be more intricate on like which strings I'm holding down and plucking versus where my right hand's just kind of rhythmically chugging along doing stuff. Yeah. I've seen people have this conversation and the, the thing that's hard to do with your, with your non-dominant hand is like picking a, a, a specific string at speed. Yeah. Yeah, like I could see that sweep picking, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Here's here's my like explosive question for this topic. Are we sure dominant hands like have any kind of component to their selection beyond literal just experience? You mean genetic? Right. Like is there is there anything there or is this just like people tend to kind of like, you know, whatever the the the, the butterfly flaps its wing, you 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 happen to use your left hand for more things or your right hand for more things when you're like quite small and then you just raise the fine motor stats on that hand a little faster i feel like life is so hard for lefties so much harder that it wouldn't it just be easier to switch hands if you could like okay so there's no left-handed people there are just people who have really shitty handwriting <laughs> maybe or maybe they get good i mean i have shitty handwriting with my left hand like i just have shitty that's handwriting. true too but imagine how much worse it would be <laughs> I've, I've heard an anecdote from some like i think it was an ancient mediterranean or maybe uh like middle eastern culture that would train their soldiers to like sword fight with each hand and use a shield with each hand so they would all their soldiers would be am, ambidextrous uh in so they wouldn't generally have a dominant hand. And then that was also beneficial, you know, just if they lost their weapon, they could pick it up uh, with their non-dominant hand, whatnot. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I, I found in art school, sometimes I would, like when we were doing particularly large format, like kind of 18 by 24 inch or larger, like life drawing kind of work where you're up on an easel um, and you're sort of you're sort of drawing with your arm more than you're drawing with like your wrist and your fingers, you know? Like it's sort of these much more kind of gross motor movements when you're doing your mark your mark making like the sort of situation where like drawing an outside curve is easier than an inside curve right right and and what i found was that when i was working that kind of problem where i'm sort of like working on the right side of the you know the surface um i would look up and notice that i was drawing with my right hand that i just like moved the i just put the charcoal on my other hand because it was easier to get to it oh interesting to where i was trying to make marks from the right hand but i would do it without thinking about it and i would never I don't even know if ambidexterity, like true ambidexterity is, is really a thing where like people just literally have no perceptible difference between anything they do with either hand, just because so much of it is like muscle memory and experience driven. But like, I did have that feeling of like, oh, wait, like this is actually is fine, like truly fine. You know, maybe it's just because I wasn't as experienced with like that kind of gross motor drawing, or maybe it's because everything my left arm had learned to do that with had been from other stuff that my right hand, my right arm had also learned, but but it did happen a bunch where I would sort of like be like, oh, just switch hands here. This is fun. And I couldn't do that if I was doing like smaller, you know, more traditional kind of small scale illustration work. Like I would never, ever, ever use my right hand for that. Yeah. I saw a lefty mug once for the mug for lefty people. <laughs> <laughs> the way it differed from a regular mug was that there was a hole in it such that if you drank out of it with your right hand, it would dribble out onto your shirt. <laughs> So it's just trolling, right? Yeah. It's great. <laughs> do you have, Kev, do you have any like weird, like little pockets of ambidexterity that have cropped up over the years? Like, do you like eat cereal with like a spoon uh, in your right hand or any of those? I'm, my phone usage is all right hand. I don't use, mm -hmm. like, it feels weird for me to hold my phone and like scroll through it on my left hand. That feels completely awkward. Are you a, a right handed mouse user? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a buddy who's a left-handed mouse user, and I'm just like, man, that's like, it's funny. It feels more extreme than being a left-handed guitar player to me for some reason, yeah. <laughs> even though it's obviously like way less intense to just move the mouse to the other side than to like restring your guitar. I I took drum lessons for a while, and my, I told you know I told my drum instructor I was left-handed, and that kind of like short-circuited his brain. So he <laughs> taught me how to play drums in an open setting. 
where you know your hands are open. Uh, traditionally, like, when you play like drums, you don't cross your arms. Yeah, traditionally, you cross your arms and you take your right arm over your left, and your right arm taps on the hi hat, and the left arm hits the snare, right? And then you move your right arm up to the other cymbals and the floor toms. And so he was teaching me how to play open, which means my left arm was up on the hi-hat, and then my right arm was tapping the snare. And so then the problem but with there... But without changing the, the layout of the, the Correct, kit. correct. And so then if I wanted to, you know, move my leading hand that's on the hi-hat and go over, I would have to cross... Or do some completely messed up. I don't even think you could do that. You would have to rearrange the whole kit. And so right. once we started learning more complex uh, like beats and fills, it was like, oh, well, okay, if you want to play that, we're going to have to move the floor tom over to the left side. We're going to have to yeah. move the ride symbol over there. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm trying to play in a punk band here. I can't be going <laughs> to the show using somebody else's drum kit and rearranging the whole thing. You know, like this is this is not gonna work. Uh, so I had to like stop, and I might have to relearn drums in the future and learn it traditionally right-handed to get that effect. Right. Yeah. And that's all the time we have for topic lords. All right. Okay. Mike, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter uh, at Mike Ambrogi, uh, A-M-B-R-O-G-I, and uh, my company, uh, Final Form Games, Final Form, uh, not the number four, but the word F-O-R-M. Um, yeah, you can find the stuff, me and the stuff I make there. And Kev, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Kev Zettler, and then also uh, on Twitter at The Radcade. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Had a blast. See you all later. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!